It's Wednesday, November 15th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions in Israel. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Daphne Sella is guiding a crowded conference room through a presentation, positioning a mouse over a picture on a screen. On October 7th, I was on my way back home from my honeymoon. Um, and as we landed in Turkey, we had a connected flight. Um, we got dozens of messages uh, about what started to happen in the kibbutzes near the border. Um, Five weeks ago in this Tel Aviv office building, someone sitting in her chair, positioning that mouse, directing the attention of the people in this room, might have been highlighting sales figures or pointing to a new product line. Today, and for the last few weeks, the workings of this building have been dedicated to the hostage advocacy group Bring Them Home. It's more than a group. It's really a national movement. It's really the nation. Daphna is talking about her cousin, Lilak Kipnis. And our entire family is like that. Um, strong people who care about human rights. And she was among the approximately three dozen kidnapped from Kibbutz Beri, close to Gaza. Daphna's cousin, Orshel, next to her, speaks uh, about another sister, relative. Our cousin, uh, Shoshan. She's now held hostage. Uh, she founded a, an NGO called Fair Planet. Uh, what they do is teach uh, farmers in Africa how to grow edible plants that are adequate, adequate to the climate there. Uh, or a blonde so music NGO producer. And Daphna, whose brown hair cascades alongside her downcast face, are committing to a strategy that we've seen before. We saw it in Silence of the Lambs or any time there's an amber alert and a grieving mother addresses a camera. You humanize the hostages. You make them real. You make the hostage takers care. You make the world pay attention. Daphna moves on to her cousin, Yehel Ghani Shoham. She is only three years old. Yehel smiles out from under an explosion of curls that frame her face like sunshine. I don't think you need to say much when you see this picture, but I keep thinking, is she getting the food she needs in order to develop... um, Is she getting the hug she needs? Is she with her mother? It is hard to know which of the messages work, if any do. Two of the Sella's cousins have been released. They're the Americans Judith Renan and her 17-year-old daughter, Natalie. But they're Americans. That must have played a role. Soon, the meeting has an unexpected visitor. Children with trauma who live... Um, in the kibbutzes or, or near the border and suffer from... It's Yossi Cohen, the previous head of the Mossad, Israel CIA. Cohen is now speaking from the vantage point of a negotiator. He acknowledges that the Qataris are less than perfect intermediaries, but they are what Israel has to work with. Okay, to go see the Emir, Muhammad, I mean, people that I know for many years, I've been there, speaking to them privately about our needs is unique to me, right? When you know that there is only one negotiator and it is now them. Because they could have told you or me, you know what? Okay, we're not doing it anymore. Or we don't have any interest in doing it from now on. Cohen says the elements that might convince Hamas as mediated through Qatar to release hostages are one, embarrassment, two, 
hopelessness on the battlefront. And then Orr breaks in. I'm not a strategic guy, he says, uh, but continues. But if, if I may suggest a third, a third option, uh, which is human beings are human beings, and people from Hamas has families, and although we, we all, all want to, to see the enemy as, as someone who is not human at all, but every human being has some humanity in, their, in, in them. Yes, yes, of course, says Cohen, as a cell phone rings and an aide rushes to take the call. We will use all levers. We will use the fact that so many hostages have other passports, and those countries want them back. As the aide tugs on his sleeve metaphorically with pleading eyes. But yes, says Cohen, all good points. Orsella's eyes are darting back and forth in his head as he tries to come up with what he's saying next. You could tell he cannot believe he is in this situation on so many levels. He's improvising. He's hoping his points get through. He's hoping his points are good ones. He wants to save his family's lives via the message that many of them spent their lives in pursuit of. These are people who believe in peace. They believe in good works for others and human connection and healing the world. And again, I'm not a political guy, but to differentiate the Israelis from different nationalities, it feels like something that may hurt the international efforts because when you speak about human beings, regardless of their nationality, I feel that it can resonate also with the Arab world because any human being is a human being. Yes, says Cohen. We will try, he tells Orr and Daphne Sella. Then he leaves to liaise or negotiate with emirs, emphasizing he'll use whatever message works. The Sellas give way to Eli David, brother of hostage Ivatar David. He's one of the hostages that Hamas showed footage of bound and face down on the floor. Today, there is word, stronger than rumor, less than fact, of an impending deal. Perhaps the women and children will be released. That would not include Evatar and 150 or so other men, many old, mostly civilians. Yossi Cohen continues his work, talking with the relevant go-betweens. The Sellas continue on, hoping, waiting for better news. And an office building in Tel Aviv hums with so much more work to be done. On the show today, we feature an interview with Patrick Brown. He recently wrote a piece in which he disclosed that, while he did not lie, he did not tell the whole truth about his investigation into climate science. The politics of the situation came into play. Patrick Brown, up next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. 
And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. So as you know, if you listen to the show, I'm a bit of a pain in the ass when it comes to attributing natural phenomenon on one distinct factor, like say climate change, when the Canadian fires were raging, I did a whole, what do we call it, a spiel, how much can we blame global warming or climate change on the Canadian fires, I quoted from Nature, the journal Nature, not just the natural state of the world. Uh, They quoted Pius Jane, a research scientist at the Canadian Forest Service, saying it's unlikely to be related to an El Nino climate pattern. Still, the journal said extraordinary weather is not unexpected as the planet warms. Quote, climate change is definitely a factor that is causing these extreme conditions to occur more frequently. So I marveled at the apparent contradiction there. You always see this in coverage of natural disasters, and it's not wrong. Climate change certainly contributes, and in some cases greatly contributes. But in areas like the frequency of hurricanes, it seems not to be a huge contributing factor. Look at the number of hurricanes. They haven't really gone up. In things like the amount of rain delivered by hurricanes, that seems very much to be affected by climate change. So I put this all out there because the other day I was reading an essay in the free press by Patrick T. Brown. And the headline, who is a researcher and an expert in the area, the headline is, I left out the full truth to get my climate change paper published. I just got published in Nature, that's the journal Nature, not just things and trees in the world, because I stuck to a narrative. I knew the editors would like, that's not the way science should work. I agree. Patrick Brown, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. How much chicanery was involved in that paper, Patrick? Well, not actually a lot of chicanery. It's more, so let me zoom out and kind of tell you the theme of of what what the piece was about. So I do think there's this dominant or preferred narrative when it comes to the you know, climate change impacts on society. And this definitely runs through the highest profile uh, research papers and, and these high impact journals. And it's also you know, because of that, it's really kind of penetrated the zeitgeist of uh, at least the left of center public um, that's paying attention to that type of media. And that narrative is, you know, it's a narrative that centers climate change impacts uh, even though there's, you know, many causal factors in a lot of in a lot of these uh, these uh, situations that we're looking at, it centers climate change impacts as kind of a motivation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, and it, it's also, you know, it, it's kind of this bleeds it leads uh, type of type of headline uh, that that is not just not just from the media but coming from research papers themselves. So I discussed in that essay, how I think that that type of framing uh, leaves out the full story or the full truth. Um, so I I personally recognize as a researcher that kind of playing into that, uh, into that preferred, into that type of narrative um, would be a high return investment for me to get a high profile research paper. So we need to publish as researchers. And so we're always looking to publish in the most prestigious journals and to get the most citations and 
to get essentially attention for your work. You want your colleagues to notice you and, and to think of you highly. And so I was just pointing out that the, the way the research <clears throat> paper is framed, everything is fine about the research paper itself. Uh, it's, you know, all of the assumptions are laid out, but it just focuses very narrowly on the climate impact of wildfires, even though we know many other things are going on. And so it just quantifies that aspect of it. And I think that that actually, in retrospect, was not the most useful use of my time as a researcher, um, because it's, you know, one of the main reasons is that it doesn't then address practical on the ground solutions to wildfire issues. So let's like, get to that in a second. But I think my listeners need to know, and uh, this is on me that I didn't state it up front. The, the paper was, and this conveys what the point was, the title, Climate Warming Increases Extreme Daily Wildfire Growth Risk in California. In a perfect world, well, so imperfect that there'd be all these wildfires, but in the perfect academic world, what would your paper have emphasized? Or what's an alternative title that would have correctly summarized what your ideal paper would have said? So I don't think the an, an ideal paper would not have a title that's a headline title like that. Um, it would be you know, uh, quantification of all important causal factors on wildfire behavior in California in the past and projecting them into the future. Gotcha. So if you were trying to explain this to your aunt who has a uh, who has a college degree, but not a PhD, and you just published the ideal paper phrased in the way and with the research that you really would have wished nature would have published. How do you explain? How do you explain to the layman what that paper says? Well, I think that that's part of the problem, actually, is that the the ideal paper is much more complicated because the real world is much more complicated. And so it would be, you know, depend, it's, it would have all these dependencies in it. It would say, well, we looked at all of the things that we think are important for wildfire behavior, including changes in ignition patterns and changes in, in fuel and vegetation over time and changes in climate. And uh, the results are, they're kind of muddled. It depends on where and when and, and over what timeframes and, and all that. And that's not conducive for a high profile, high impact paper, even though that's the complicated reality that we live in. And so it's hard to explain that uh, to, to your aunt who's not uh, in the field, but that's actually, I think the most kind of useful knowledge for society is to, is to say, well, in the future, you know, given climate change, uh, and if we do this, we can mitigate climate change or we can offset climate change with, uh, you know, mechanical thinning and prescribed burning uh, in this area, but it's contingent on these other factors. Uh, it's not a clean story. It's not nearly as clean. And so it's not going to get uh, grabbed by the media and it's not going to be as likely to, to be in a high profile journal. But so I think that's kind of the problem that I'm highlighting. Actually. Might it say something like, I mean, is it true that climate change contributes to wildfires, but it may be the second or third uh, most important con contributor? Right. That, that certainly uh, is, uh, when, when you're talking about hazardous fuel, when you're talking about the buildup of fuels, that is absolutely a plausible uh, but your paper didn't actually find or look at what the other causes might be. Right. So what I'm saying is that uh, even though that would have been more valuable research, it's more practical, more useful. Uh, I recognize that uh, that was not nearly as high a return on investment as a researcher. And so I'm, you know, I'm trying to 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 put blame on myself uh, for doing yeah. that, but then also trying to close the gap between 
what would be best for, for a researcher's career and what's best for society. Is there one sentence you would change if you could resubmit your paper, knowing it would be published, but encapsulating the more perfect world that we posit? Well, no, because really what I'm challenging is the research question itself, not the paper. So the paper is fine and all of the uh, all of the assumptions are laid out perfectly in the paper. It doesn't claim that we're looking at these other factors. It says very plainly that we're not. We're only looking at the at the climate change factor. So the paper is fine. It's the it's the research question itself. Yeah. So what's another factor? Ig um, vegetation and ignition. What does ignition mean in this context? Human ignition patterns. So humans uh, ignite 80 to 90 percent of, of wildfires in, in California. And so depending on where those ignitions happen, uh, that could affect wildfire uh, danger or the in in the context of this paper, the risk of extreme uh, daily wildfire growth. And so incorporating that, which is a really important factor, and incorporating uh, the buildup of vegetation. So that that's that situation is that we uh, decided as a society early in the 20th century that we're going to put out all wildfires uh, as soon as they're as soon as they're ignited. And so we used to have a situation with uh, very uh, with higher frequency, low intensity fires. So every decade or so fires would come through and clear out uh, the vegetation uh, between the more mature trees. And since that policy was enacted, we now have a century's worth of vegetation buildup. So then when there is a fire, uh, it's much more intense, much harder to, to fight. And so that is a huge factor affecting uh, affecting these wildfires. And is there a way? Has anyone quantified that? To both of those, uh, we looked at the number of times people were lighting things on fire or, I don't know, some other factor, the severity, the intensity of these human ignitions or studying the amount of vegetation. Is that possible? Has that study been done? Yeah, well, we're doing we're we're doing it now with the same under the same framework. But there's there's been many many studies uh, in more narrow senses looking at smaller areas or individual uh, fires, looking at the effect of of the fuel uh, change. And uh, those studies, along with our with our current work that we're doing, really highlights that it's a huge that it's a huge factor. But again, my point. So you're is, saying you're saying if your study that you spent all your time with wasn't about the extreme daily wildfire growth risk in California from climate warming. If you had and your team focused the attention on the extreme daily wildfire growth risk because of vegetation, nature wouldn't be interested, you're saying. Well, I think there's two there's kind of two versions. There's the there's the version that's much more uh, all encompassing in terms of factors. And that's going to be a much more uh, boring paper that would not be high impact. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's then there's a version that ignores climate change and only looks at one of these other causal factors. And I think that it would just not uh, get through reviewers. They would say, why would you ever not look at climate change uh, as well? Well, that so would be I've, flawed, right? That would be flawed not to look at climate change. Yeah, that would be flawed, but it's but then the same argument could be made about my paper. Right. That so that's flawed. it. That's the crux of your argument. You could yeah. do a paper that only looks at climate change and it gets published. You can't look at a paper that doesn't look at climate change and hope for it to get get published. Yeah, and it's really really what I'm what I'm worried about is the larger scale of so many so many papers doing this 
on different aspects of, of society, whether it be crop yields or, or deaths from non-optimal temperatures or GDP or anything, that there's, there's such a emphasis on seeking out and highlighting a negative climate change impact kind of within the noise of everything else that's going on. So even though there's positive trends in all these climate sensitive aspects of our society, uh, the papers go in and they look and they find, you know, within that data, they find the negative impact from climate change and then frame the paper around that. And then that is what's getting kind of pumped out to the public all the time. And I think it gives a very skewed view of how large these impacts are relative to everything else that's going on. We'll be right back with Patrick Brown after the break. Welcome back to The Gist. We continue our conversation with climate scientist Patrick Brown. So speaking of wildfires, did you burn your career by writing this free press article? Uh, that's to be determined. <laughs> we will see. Well, tell me, I mean, are you, you're not on a tenure track and you decided not to be for a while. You're a co-director of the Breakthrough Institute. So that means, well, you tell me, you said, I, I know I'm not going to be a professor. Yeah, yeah. I would never have done this um, from within the academy from if I was still a professor. And you see, I mean, I, yeah, so I was definitely uh, expunged uh, from that community. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of high profile negative reaction uh, publicly. By the way, my inbox is flooded with really positive reaction from other PhD researchers. So I got a lot of uh, validation from Back that. channel, right? They, uh, they say, I can't yeah. possibly put this on the yeah. record anywhere or publicly stick up for you. Right. But did you decide to leave academia before the free press piece? Yes. I mean, okay. but, but this was part like kind of feeling pressure to do research that I didn't think was necessarily the most useful was one of the reasons that I that I was uncomfortable in academia, frankly. Um, but I, I just want to say that the the social, uh, you know, kind of that all the social negativity that I got from this from within the community is part of the thing that I'm talking about that that you once kind of a, a mainstream thinking kind of takes hold and you're trying to navigate the career, um, you know, stepping stones within your field. You don't want to ruffle a bunch of feathers. You don't want to uh, make people uh, mad at you or have you know weird thoughts about you, essentially. And that that social dynamic within the within the field affects outcomes, affects outcomes of the of the research. And uh, I just think that people should be aware of that dynamic. How? Big a threat to humanity is the ongoing effects of climate change. That, that's such a it's such a big question. I think that I guess what I'm highlighting is that the the dynamic the dynamic that I see uh, makes it so that most most people that would be my contemporaries, kind of educated, left of center people, uh, have a way more pessimistic view about climate change than I do. Looking at the data. Uh, and it, it, I think that that's just informed again by looking at looking at all of our climate sensitive aspects of society and how they've all gone in a positive direction over the past 50 years, despite that we've had one degree Celsius warming. And we're expecting another one to 1.25 degree Celsius warming over the next 50 years. And I see no reason why these uh, countervailing forces that are offsetting the influence of climate change uh, would suddenly stop. 
And so I have, I'm very optimistic for humanity uh, going forward. We do need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, or we do need to reduce CO2 emissions to zero in order to stabilize the climate. And so that is something that, that uh, we need to be pushing in that direction for. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, my view is more that, yeah, we're going, we're not going to meet the Paris goals of 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius, but we're also not going to be on these crazy high uh, emission scenarios that, that are used by a lot of these papers to get extremely large uh, numbers. So we're going to be at 2.5 degrees Celsius, 3 degrees Celsius warming by the end of the century. And given that, uh, I think we should be studying, you know, much more practical on the ground solutions to uh, impacts that come up and uh, also making sure that we're not standing in the way of, of economic development, because that is the main uh, thing that we see historically and across space today that that uh, protects people from the climate. If you were a scientific advisor to the president, would you tell him or her to withdraw or not withdraw from the Paris Climate Accords when Donald Trump made that decision? Uh, no, I would not tell them to withdraw. Uh, I think that I think well. There's, I mean, the Paris the Paris Agreement does not really have teeth necessarily. So there's there's no uh, there's there's no downside to being in it. Uh, practically speaking, there's a lot of downside to to withdrawing because it 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 shows the rest of the world that you're not willing to cooperate on it. So uh, I would not withdraw. What kind of car do you drive? Uh, right now, we have one car in my family. We've been sharing, uh, and it's a it's a Prius. Ah, that's the best one, right? Yeah. That's the perfect one to burnish your credentials, is it not? Even a Tesla is not as, uh, <laughs> not as um, status-inducing as a Prius. <laughs> right. And my wife is in uh, sustainability. I am embedded in, in, this, in this world. Um, I'm not. <laughs> I, I guess it's too bad that it matters to people, but I'm not a Republican. Um, and but yeah, I just I just see uh, I just see in the data something something very different than what's getting what's getting communicated. And that's that's one of my main concerns. What is a commonly repeated trope talking point related to climate change that you see mainstream media, good newspapers say without really stopping that you'd like to correct? Uh, I guess in general, just the just the notion that whatever bad weather is going on that day is due to climate change. And a lot of times there is some aspects, some, some change in, in the intensity, but it's usually just much smaller than, than the way that it's, that it's painted. It used to be de facto, uh, pro forma, that they would say, whereas one weather event cannot be contributed to the global effects. They, they would at least say that and then say, but, you know, the amount of rain of hurricanes is getting uh, increased. Now they've, they've, but I have noticed that that pro forma disclaimer has pretty much disappeared. Yeah, I think because now there's, you know, climate desks at all these newspapers and Climate is not actually something that's very easy to cover in the news uh, because it would be like, OK, you're going to wait 20 years and then and then uh, talk about a trend in something where yeah, it's so, like having a history desk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have to cover all weather in the in the lens of climate. And a lot of times it's just not it's just not really the the right lens. Um, I can give you a more specific example for uh, mm -hmm. extreme cold. Yeah. Uh, so this is something that is really kind of jarring to me that 
that all of the consensus science from the IPCC and, and every other um, synthesis organization uh, says and shows that, that as it gets warmer, as, as we put more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, extreme cold should get warmer. It should not get more extreme. It should not get colder. And, but there are some uh, research papers that, that suggest that it's possible that in certain latitudes that it could get colder uh, in certain circumstances. But yet that kind of g gets grabbed onto that's very, very you know non-mainstream uh, science. That gets grabbed onto and uh, is like hoisted up as this uh, as this portion of the science that I think is getting way more credit than it deserves. Uh, right. Because it just feeds into this this narrative that oh climate change makes everything worse it makes all extremes more extreme so we're going to cover extreme cold also under the lens of climate change not that this 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 cold event actually would have been colder were it not for increasing greenhouse gas concentrations right uh, so, so how it plays out is some uh, ignoramus on a very cold day says I thought there was climate change I thought there was global warming and some smart guy says don't you understand we know now that the effects of climate change are such that all extremes are exacerbated. But even though the original ignoramus was in fact an ignoramus, that is not the appropriate retort. Right, right. It's more just that you still get cold uh, despite the fact that we have a, a slowly increasing baseline warming. Patrick T. Brown is the co-director of the climate and energy team at the Breakthrough Institute. He published in the free press, I left out the full truth to get my climate change paper published. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thanks a lot. Thank your dog for me too. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>